Hello and welcome to the Figure Podcast, a monthly conversation between George Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer, where each episode we look at a figure, a number and an image and dissect it. I don't think I've ever added dissect, but I'm going to go with it. And I'm going to kick off by throwing out a book recommendation, which is Expectation by Anna Hope. I read that so quickly. And it was great. Okay, I loved that book. I read it in December and I was going to include it in our recommendations roundup, but I actually had so many other things and it was such a long time since I'd read it that I decided to not include it. So I'm glad we can talk about it now. What was it that you loved about it? It's incredibly easy to read and it's very, um, it's very gripping. I feel like I don't want to say this because of what ends up happening in parts of the book, but just go with me a little bit, is that it does explore female friendship dynamics very well. Um, The sort of competition potentially alongside the undying loyalty bond. uh, That's really looked at very closely. It is. And And um, there's no kind of rose tinted glasses. It's (laughs) very real relationships that you See, and I love the way that she moves through time. So you've got this kind of narrative when they're in their 30s and 40s, mainly. Yeah, that's the main one, isn't it? And then they flip back between 20s and then... And then at school as well. And I love those little extra inserts. You you get a window into what they were like as teenagers and when they first were talking about feminism and all sorts of different things. Just a brilliantly written novel. Highly recommend Anything else that is on your recommendation list? Any TV shows or films, podcasts? Yes. Um, I also watched Pretty Woman for the first time and Sleepless in Seattle for the first time. And I also have watched the entire three seasons of Selling Sunset, (laughs) which was extremely comforting. It was Um, the most escapist programme ever created perfect for escapism you just feel you feel like you're going on a night out watching it because they're all dressed up and drinking champagne you're just like you just feel feel great afterwards some of those programs would just make me feel bad about myself because I am not dressing up and living that lifestyle but it was so far removed from anything that is within my reach that I just completely indulged in it and totally loved it and for anyone who doesn't know what it is it's basically Real estate in LA with multi-million dollar houses that you get to see and they're shown around to all these flashy people in their cars. There's quite a lot of drama between the estate agents who get paid on commission. So the more they sell, the richer they get. And it's just that like everything is blue sky all the time, apart from the drama, which is just lovely to dissect, to use that word again. Again, they do look at female friendships and that, like loyalties. And it's so funny because it shows you, like, no matter what age you are, you know, whether you're primary school, secondary school, work, mum always said this to me. She said, you know, those friendship groups will never go away. And that's true. It's part of being human, isn't it? But that just shows you do you have natural groups that people tend to fall into. So. Yeah, completely. Um, I've got a film recommendation on films that we, I've never seen before, which I definitely should have ages ago which what was it? call me by your name oh i haven't seen it either <gasps> georgia it's so good <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is. 
do not resist this one. I don't know why I was resisting it. I think I thought it was going to be more sad and more difficult to watch than it was. And it isn't. It is sad, but it's the most beautiful, like delicious story. And every shot is stunning. It feels like you're going on holiday when you watch this film. You can kind of just melt into it and you feel like you're in somewhere in Northern Italy, which is how it opens. Um, and also on the Italy, I've actually quite, quite an Italian themed month I'd say um we also watched Roman Holiday which I've seen before but is again fantastic film one of the debuts from Audrey Hepburn um I've reread Eat Pray Love for the third time um and I have you're going to Rome by any chance (laughs) (laughs) I hope I am um I feel like I'm really preparing and also I've decided that I'm going to teach myself Italian after having a couple of classes over the years but never really permitting I've bought myself a grammar book which is the geekiest thing ever and my friend Sarah has also bought the same one and we're going to teach ourselves and then try and talk to each other that's great that's good to have a partner to do that it is I think you need an accountability partner for that right and I have two more recommendations very quickly one is the Nora Ephron documentary which you can watch on now tv and I don't know about you but I sometimes find documentaries I'm not really in the mood to watch them because I think that they're going to be a bit dry and a bit dull and I kind of want to just switch off my brain this is so comforting and fascinating and has all sorts of really beautiful brilliant actresses reading out parts of her essays and interviews and I really highly recommend that especially if you've just watched Sleepless in Seattle and the other one is Judy Dench on David Tennant's podcast oh um, I love David Tennant's podcast so glad it's back me too um, and my favorite moment of that podcast has to be when she declares that she would like every fashion shoot to have at least two wind machines because that's what they gave her when she did the shoot for Vogue. The first figure that we're going to talk about is Yotam Ottolenghi, who is a chef and restaurant owner and author, I guess, because he's written many cookbooks. Um, He's also a columnist. And we wanted to talk about him I guess because we haven't had a a cook or a chef or someone foodie for quite a while. We've done Jamie Oliver before. Um, But the other thing is that he really caught my attention again when I listened to Table Manners podcast and Jessie Ware interviewing him. And I've also listened to The Other Way Around where Jessie Ware appears as a guest on his podcast, Simple, which is also lovely. And just being reminded of how much of a phenomena he is His heritage is really interesting. He has a German mother and an Italian father and he grew up and was born in Jerusalem. Mm. And then he did a Cordon Bleu um, course after he had done a journalism course. So this food was something that was always part of his childhood and his life, but it wasn't necessarily what he did right out of the starting blocks. And I think a lot of people thought, well, why have you done all this time on journalism and now you're completely flipping onto something different? And now he's writing in The Guardian, so he is using his journalism. <laughs> I think that that's what makes a great um, cookery book writer. And he now works in quite large teams, which is really interesting. And I, I watched a great interview with Samra Nostrat, and she talks all about 
going into what he calls the test kitchen. And there's just a great big team of people. Everyone gets involved and people bring in ideas and then they sort of test the quantities and everything. And each, I mean, the cookery books he's done recently are very much collaborative projects, but you need that writing element. It makes sense for him to have that background. And another great example of that is Diana Henry, who did, I think she did English at Oxford and then she became a food writer and then started writing her own cookbooks more recently. Um, I listened to her episode of Your Books with Daisy Buchanan recently, which is such a great podcast. She goes into people's houses and she looks at all of their bookshelves and then that guides the conversation. Mm, we should do that on one episode, Sharp. That's a good idea. Yeah. We should pick each other's like top five or... Oh, I'd love to do that. That's a great idea. From a different angle, the article that he wrote about coming out as a gay father and his process of surrogacy. It was interesting hearing him talk about the decision to, I guess, speak about his personal life, which he said he struggled with, you know, whether to do that or not. And actually, he was so glad that he did. It's really well laid out because he goes through, he takes you through the process of decision-making and all the different avenues that they tried to go down. Quite a few options, I remember. Yeah, and so they were going to do co-parenting where there was a lesbian couple and he and his husband and they would share the child and they thought, well, that will be, they can have male influence, they can have female influence, they, we can have some flexibility and some freedom still, but we can still be involved. And then it became this sort of divorce proceeding before the child had even been born and they realized that wasn't going to work. And then there was a friend who had wanted to have children. She lived around the corner and they thought, well, this can work. They did four rounds of IVF, I think it was, oh, and none of them worked. And, and I think that he also examines the, that for her, that woman, that friend who was in her forties, that was really it. She, unless she wanted to adopt or, or find a surrogate herself, that wasn't really going to work for her, for her to have children. But as a man, that wasn't the end. So he kind of, he acknowledges that um, imbalance in there as well. And then in the end, they find um, a surrogate in America and she had already had several children herself and then had decided to do surrogacy. And looping back round to that point at the beginning of do I share my personal life, do I not? The reason that she did that was because she saw Oprah for interviewing somebody who'd done that. And that was what inspired her. So without that person on the Oprah show sharing their surrogacy story, they wouldn't have the child that they have now because the woman would never have thought that that was something she wanted to do. So I think it's just a really interesting examination of what is the point of sharing a story? You don't necessarily know what the point is until you do it and then you see the ripple effects. Absolutely. Same with songs, I imagine, or any kind of art. Um, an expression of yourself for sure you have no idea how it's going to touch someone else mm. have you got a favorite otolenghi recipe yes um other than so all of the pastries pretty much um, <laughs> do you make these um, or do you go to a deli and get one i go to the deli I was going to say, this is a, a new skill. No, my, t- my favourite things, which I always have whenever I go, which obviously isn't actually that often, but I've been a few times, and there's this, like, very light lemon tart. It's so good. And then I always get this amazing, like, broccoli pomegranate 
almond quinoa. I feel like it's quinoa. But I get the same thing every time. Always those two items. That sounds delicious. Yeah, because he actually opened his deli in Notting Hill. That was the first one he opened and then opened some more. And then it was after that he brought out his first book. Mm. And if you watch the um, interview with Samra Nostra, he talks about the importance of having the food out and like it's the sort of bustling market. That's what he wants. He doesn't want anything to be shut away. He wants it to look beautiful and enticing and free and spontaneous out in yeah, and it's, it's everywhere literally like yeah when you walk in it's just all over the place and then communal <laughs> dining is obviously part of it as well it's sharing those stories and experiences because in the notting hill one there's just one big round table i don't know what on earth they're doing about covid maybe they haven't got that at the moment but usually that is what they have my favorite recipe is from his most recent book simple and I discovered that simple is an acronym and this is how they just like made the book. So it means short on time, less than 10 ingredients, something that you can make ahead, something that you can make from your pantry, something if you're lazy and something that's easier than you think. So those are the categories and all of the recipes come into one of those, which I really love because Ossolengi has such a big reputation for being difficult and kind of uh, a bit obscure and you have to go to a specialized supermarket to get pomegranate molasses and sumac before you make anything which is quite out of the way and sort of quite time consuming and lots of effort but this book has been designed with that completely flipped um and so the recipe is a lentil stew with fennel and aubergine and tomatoes And it's really simple and you just sort of put some things to roast and then put it all in a pot and kind of leave it. So you don't have to constantly be stirring it or finding something odd to kind of flavor it with. Um, It's just really delicious. And my uncle makes that when um, he comes to stay or when I go and stay with him, which is lovely. My mum always makes an Ottolenghi flourless cake. Oh, yum. She calls it a cloud cake. I'm not really sure why she calls it a cloud cake. Is it soft and like pillowy it's very pillowy so maybe it tastes like is it as pillowy as the coconut cake from sage in ubud um (laughs) it's it's actually lighter than that because even that cake had probably had i don't know probably had some kind of grain in it that cake was very good do you remember when we stopped the car just to get that cake yes we (laughs) waited to get it everybody go I mean, considerable amount out of their way just to get this coconut cake. So, yeah, yeah I just, um, I just love food and I just love what he's done for food and he makes it exciting and different and you just think something's maybe not really going to work and then it really does. Well, he's also brought Middle Eastern and Mediterranean together, which is like totally. very popular categories of food um, and combine them, which is... But I think, again, with what Samra Nostrat was saying, um, who, for anybody who doesn't know who she is, she did Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and there's a Netflix series, which is phenomenal, which I'd highly recommend. Um, when she was interviewing him, she just said this beautiful, eloquent thank you at the end of the interview, saying that she didn't feel like her culture and her the Middle Eastern side of her family and her heritage had ever been acknowledged and sort of given the value that it deserves until Ottolenghi became much more famous doing his books. People were going to his delis and that 
that visibility was so important and hadn't really had in the same way before Ottolenghi came onto the scene. The second figure is that there are six times as many fungi species as there are plants species. And to put that into context, there are about 390,000 species of plant that are known. So there's about six times that of fungi. I saw some pretty funky looking shots of fungi, which were pretty amazing, but they do look a little bit gross. What do you think? You know when they like fast, you know when they like show them growing and they speed it up and then it's like, and it's like, looks like this little monster. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I do kind of know what you mean, but I... So I've seen a couple of videos now, and this might seem like a really random figure. When I told people that this is what we were doing, they were like, what, why are you, what, what, why? And um, the inspiration is a book called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake on fungi and why it's important and why they're miraculous and what we can learn about ourselves and the plant kingdom from looking at the way that they live and grow and move. And they're just incredible and they do not get the attention they're like the minority of of kind of science (laughs) it's true no one does talk about fungi they only talk about plants yeah Um, and And it only became its own kingdom in the 60s so we before this before the 60s we had plant kingdom animal kingdom and we didn't have fungi kingdom because it's actually a separate organism and what's so fascinating is that we both plants and animals very much rely on fungi and fungi rely on us, but we never really think about it or stop to appreciate that symbiotic relationship. And, and with the videos, so there is a video of uh, Merlin being interviewed by Helen MacDonald, who is a naturalist writer who wrote H is for Hawk, which is a memoir about grief and um, hawks and falcons and birds. And it's absolutely beautiful. She interviews him and there are a couple of videos in there and basically he's dyed the fungi blue and the plant red and you can see how integrated it is all the way through the plant roots like the plant root basically can't exist without the fungi and the fungi can't exist without the plant root and to try and separate them into two things it's a bit pointless so you can't actually think of them as separate things and then the other video shows them how they move and grow so When I was in biology, I don't know about you, I thought nuclei, which is the DNA core of any cell, would always remain separate from every other nuclei. And they're just like little things and then they come together, but they never fuse. Mm. Not with fungi. There's sort of no separation between where does this one organism start and where does it end? Sort of, they're just like this connective, everything is connective. And I think that's a really good thing to shake your mind out of this feeling that we always have that one organism is one thing the other organism is another thing and you just think oh well they're just quite you know distinct and they've got their own boundaries but then when you look at these videos of fungi which I agree sometimes look like monsters it's like whoa no they're not like everything is just all together Mm. that's what I find quite exciting (laughs) it is exciting (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of it's, it's important to think about our whole our whole natural world as as it is one, really. Yeah. You can't really without the other. And the same with like bacteria and viruses and an infectious disease. And it is really interesting thinking about all the other microorganisms and organisms that... Yeah. 
in our microbiome, which is sort of our gut, I guess, we yeah. have more... Second brain. Exactly. Actually. We have more cells of microbes than we do of our own human cells. So yeah. us walking around as humans, we're more microbe than we are human. Yeah, we sure are. Which is just mind-blowing. The research into this is so fascinating about how the entire microbiome is influenced by our diet, our lifestyle, how that, you know, interacts with the vagus nerve. Um, It's so interesting. The problem is, is you can't really do ethical testing on humans with your microbiome. You can't take out a microbiome from a human or trap them in a room for 90 days and feed them just white food so they can see what happens to their mental health you know that's not really <laughs> allowed so it's it's hard to actually to test but um it, there's fascinating research all the time coming out um i'm gonna say some more fun facts about fungi yes please do what is your favorite fun fact oh and most surprising maybe they're the same so I'm just going to insert a clip of Merlin talking. So I just wanted to read from the beginning of this chapter called Living Labyrinths. Imagine that you could pass through two doors at once. It's inconceivable, yet fungi do it all the time. When faced with a forked path, fungal hyphae don't have to choose one or the other. They can branch and take both routes. One can confront hyphae with microscopic labyrinths and watch how they nose their way around. If obstructed, they branch. After diverting themselves around an obstacle, the hyphal tips recover the original direction of their growth. They soon find the shortest path to the exit. If one follows the growing tips as they explore, it does something peculiar to one's mind One tip becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, yet all remain connected in one mycelial network. Is this organism singular or plural? I find myself wondering, before I'm forced to admit that it's somehow and probably both. I love how mind-boggling fungi are. I just find it a really good thing to stop questioning all the assumptions that you've made constantly over kind of science lessons or just reading and living in the world. It has no head and no heart, but it does have a sort of mind, I guess, because it has intelligence to move and, and, and live and go through things. Another fun fact is that the largest fungi in the world is 10 kilometers squared. It's in Oregon, and it's one of the biggest organisms in the world. Yeah, I'm sure it is. My other fun facts are that, did you know, Beatrix Potter, who is the illustrator, artist, children's writer, was a mycologist, which is the term for someone who studies fungi. I did know that that was the term for someone who studied fungi, but I didn't realise that she was. That would have been unusual back then. Super unusual. And obviously, as a woman, she was sort of shunned and... Um, the paper which was on spores was not um, received very well. I think that she got something slightly wrong. This is what Merlin said when I actually asked him about it. 
but she was really ahead of her time. And the drawings that she did, the watercolors, which we'll put up on our Instagram at some point, are stunning. And they're still used today by mycologists. It's really cool. When I was watching all these interviews with Merlin, the other thing that I found very interesting was his response to what he thinks the coronavirus is and how we move forward to tackle it. And he says that the coronavirus is a symptom of our dysfunctional behaviour because of farming and the way that we're approaching animals and all of these different behaviours that we haven't stopped to question and that a vaccine is sort of like putting a plaster on it rather than looking at what is the root cause of this virus. And if we don't look at the root cause of the virus, we will just keep creating more and more pandemics. I mean, look how many epidemics and pandemics have come from China from wet markets. Yeah. I mean, fact, SARS, MERS, Hong Kong flu virus. Um, I don't understand how even... We've had so many of them before this that, that it wasn't stopped before now. But there there are still wet markets that have resumed in China even now. So it's really important that as a as like a whole world that we actually work together. But there's obviously so many politics and other agendas that happen all the time that mean that that's difficult to do. And but I agree with Merlin so much in that, and this is a symptom. I mean, think about life before COVID. I mean, it was absolutely it was it was going to have to come to a breaking point because just kind of going a bit mad and then I think you know looking at the state of the ocean and the air quality and all those sorts of things when people stopped you saw how quickly the world could breathe finally completely and the other thing that I love from Elizabeth Gilbert Liz just says look the world is telling you to stop go to your room and think about what you did (laughs) yes it is so true it's like we've been teenagers who have just gone on a huge series of parties and sort of being very excessive and overindulgent. And now we need to clean up and think about how we move forward and change our behaviour so that we have a house to live in. Our third figure is an illustration by the artist and activist Florence Gibbon, who recently released her first book, which is called Women Don't Owe You Pretty. And the illustration that we've chosen has a red background and a woman of Asian heritage with lovely red lips holding a cocktail. And it says, there is enough room for all women to be whole without tearing each other down. And this is a sort of a compliment to the chapter, which is mainly about refusing to take comfort in other women's flaws. And what she means by that is looking at the instinctive, internalized misogyny that so many of us have that when we see somebody walking down the street and they're wearing quite a tight dress or it's a bit short or they're wearing super high heels and maybe they've got something that you wouldn't choose to wear yourself and you go oh who the hell did she think she is instead of doing that you go wow she's so confident or Instead of hearing about the person you're going out with ex-girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and then going and looking up them up on Instagram and criticizing them and thinking that they look, I don't know, posy or not posy enough or too thin or not thin enough or all these different things, 
Same with if you are doing it with an ex's current partner, just stop. Why are we self-harming in that way? Why are we being, because it's not even doing anything to the other person. It's only affecting you as an individual and making you feel even worse and just keeping you trapped in this internalized misogynistic mess. I so agree. And I actually, I notice it with family members who are older than me, who will look at women on television or magazines and be like, oh, she's too thin. She's had too much plastic surgery. Um, She's got fake boobs, you name it. And I grew up around that. So I instinctively think that. And then when I got to a certain age, I was like, wait, why am I criticizing someone for having had a boob job or, or anything about her? It's like, what? No, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't make you this more of this type of person or more of this type of person if you've had any plastic surgery or what you wear um you know calling out someone for being too thin is in my opinion just as bad as saying someone's too fat it's like again why do we need to say that is that because we're all striving to be as thin as possible and therefore we see a thin person and therefore it's threatening how mad is that we definitely box women in to certain types or whether they're able to express themselves in a feminine way or not how you put yourself kind of out there and you kind of engage in that like capitalist model which she was I also found so interesting yeah speaking of which I've just finished reading um Camilla Thurlow's memoir which is called Not the Type and this is such a key example of exactly what we're talking about that she went on to Love Island beautiful girl from Scotland didn't really have a Scottish accent, so people immediately were confused by that, as they always are. I get that all the time. Mm-hmm. And she used to work as a bomb disposal humanitarian worker, and that did not fit the type of Love Island. And her talking about feminism didn't fit the type. And so it was such a good example of how we box women in and then tear them down. It's so destructive. You know, she pointed out just... Megan on Love Island, something came out about how many um, sexual partners that she had had, I think she, in the episode or something. And it was, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, like 50 or 60, potentially, whatever. Everyone freaked out. They were like, oh my God, that's so many people. And yet on the same episode, Adam had said that his like number or whatever was like over 200. And yet no one cares. I just hate it. Like people, women get so weird about talking about how many sexual partners they have or haven't had. Who cares? Like it's, it should not matter or take away from their worth. But that's, again, it feeds into this competitive kind of streak that women have to compare themselves to each other. And Florence's point point on this is that either way you are going to be ridiculed and criticized. If you sleep with a hundred people, you will be a whore or a slut. And if you sleep with one person, you will be frigid and a prude. So you can't actually win. So you might as well just do whatever the hell you want. (laughs) Yep. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is (laughs) the tagline of this episode. Um, Because that, no, that that was amazing. I I love that. I love what she talks about. Frigid, people were calling girls frigid. Oh my God, that I related so much to that and it's like boys who then like you you don't like them so then they call you frigid there's literally no foundation for this insult like what how do they know unless you've actually been with that person 
you right. will not know if they're frigid and, or not. And, and let me tell you, anyone who calls you frigid for the sake of it has not been with you, and that's and they're pissed off, and that's exactly. what they think. Exactly <laughs> because they don't like it. And yeah. it's um God, the language around it is so interesting mm. and it's so just loaded. And I think the word pretty is very interesting. Because, and this is the this story of why she named her book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty. It comes from a quote and it's about um, women paying rent, quote unquote, with their prettiness to exist in the world. That you have to behave in a certain way, shave your legs, put your makeup on, dress to your body tight, put your heels on, all these different things. And then you're allowed, that's your rent. And then you're allowed to walk through the world and we'll leave you alone, but we probably won't leave you alone. We'll probably wolf whistle you and kind of harass you. So it's just all the different um, complications of being a woman tied up in this quote, which she then turned into the uh, book title. And yeah, I just, I, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. The, the one thing I would say about the book is if you don't like being told what to do, this book might not be for you because almost every single sentence is an imperative. Lots I of like that, because then you immediately, you immediately put it into real-life context, don't you? Yeah. I think it's really important, and I like the strength of it. But the other thing that I found a couple of my friends have struggled with is when the book came out, she was 21. And I think there's something about being told what to do by somebody who is younger than you, even if it's only by a couple of years, that, again, you're being, the ageism prejudice comes in, and you think, well, what do you know? Why, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? But what I think we need to flip it around and say, actually, being that little bit younger than us, she has less internalized misogyny because she grew up in a slightly more progressive world. And the times when we were younger, just out by three years, oh, made massive a difference. difference. I'm telling you, the Gen Z girls who just, I feel like way more than the generation our year and above are just so much more take it or leave it and actually the boys in their generation are the same I don't I don't it'll be really interesting to see what their views you know the 16 year olds now on like feminism and the difference between expectations of men and women even my brother's age it's totally different the conversations that I've had around feminism with people my age and above are completely different totally. to the ones I've had with people who are three four years younger than me I cannot believe about marriage even talking about marriage and like careers like with girls my age and above it's it was it's still you're still sold you've been sold the fairy tale myth and we would spend hours dressing up yes. and pretending Big to dress veil and all yeah that. all of this I mean it's just completely ingrained and really? I think it's quite as deep in people who are a little bit younger Oh no, Gen Z are just, they know where it's at. They, they grew, they've grown up in this new world. Young people are still not taken seriously enough, I think. You know, a lot of the older generation think, you know, what do you know at age 13? But I mean, look, look who's coming up. You know, they're, they're coming for us, which is amazing. I say that as if I'm like 25 years older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this month's episode of The Figure Podcast. We will be back same time next month. And please check us out on Instagram where we will have all the images associated with today's episode. And please rate, review and subscribe. We would really, really, really appreciate it. <laughs> really.
really 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 <laughs> <laughs> until next month bye bye